Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, he is an American playwright and screenwriter who has received an Academy Award, three Tony Awards, a Pulitzer Prize for his work. Most recently, in 2023, he won the Tony for Best Revival of a Musical, and that musical is Parade. And not only is it written with tremendous historical accuracy, but the story of Leo Frank that is the centerpiece of this musical hit so close to home for my guest because his great uncle owned the pencil factory where Leo Frank worked and where all of this was meant to have happened, the crime he was falsely accused of. So the idea that not only is this musical so historically accurate, but so personally, personally connected to my guest today, Alfred Urey, it's quite astonishing. Welcome, Alfred, to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is the writer Alfred Urey. Alfred has won two Tony Awards, the Academy, the Academy Award and a Pulitzer Prize, among many, many other works. Uh, sorry, I'm going to start again. Hey everyone, my guest today is the writer Alfred Urey. Alfred has won two Tony Awards, the Academy Award, and a Pulitzer Prize, among many, many other awards. Some of his work for the stage includes Driving Miss Daisy, The Last Night of Ballyhoo, and Parade. And for screen, the adaptation of Driving Miss Daisy, Mystic Pizza, and Richard in Love, among others. His work often considers life for Jews living in the American South, but he also co-wrote Mystic Pizza, a fan favorite. So obviously that movie is not about Jews in the South, but I am so thrilled to talk to the man who gave me maybe one of my favorite jobs ever on Broadway, The Last Night of Ballyhoo. Welcome newly minted two-time Tony Award winner, Alfred Urey to the podcast. Hello. Hey, Alana, that's three-time Tony winner. Three-time, pardon me. So, so two for Parade. Yeah. And one for Ballyhoo. Of course, I leave out the one I was in. What what a life in the theater. 
And what a life, you know, I read somewhere that you said I was born to be a writer, most likely. And, uh, and that has, in fact, been something you've done for so long, so well. But one of the things I want to talk to you about today is the fact that this beautiful musical parade, which had a life in the 90s, and then a life a few years later, um, it's been done all over the world, and probably in every high school across our nation. What has it been like to revisit this powerful, beautiful, meaningful piece all these years later um, from from when you think about when you and, and Jason Robert Brown really first started spitballing about making this play? Uh, that was about 30 years ago, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and how it is now is, I say it all the time, utterly surreal. I mean, a year ago now, I had no idea that there was going to be a production of Parade like this. It just happened to me. And I must say, it's incredibly lucky and beautifully done. I mean, a director like Michael Arden doesn't come along very often. And uh, here he is. I mean, I think this production, uh, helmed by him, is totally why there is so much success right now. Uh, and also, yeah. I'm afraid that the subject matter is caught up with the times and uh, that's not so good but it was good for us the show has been miraculous big hit yeah it's so meaningful well to that end when you think about was it 98 when it was first done right when you think about I, I feel like I read somewhere maybe in talking to Jason you know I know you guys have had the opportunity to to work on it often you know over the years we when they new about nine years later that i think oh seven we did a yeah. wonderful production of it in london with another wonderful director rob ashford and mm. we did it at the donmar theater and people who know theater know that the donmar in london is a remarkable place it's it's tiny i mean you can stand on that stage and make eye contact with absolutely everybody sitting in the house uh, and we got to work on it there about 10 years after we did it in the first place. And uh, we did some changes quite, I'd say 10%, maybe, uh, maybe more. And then just now, working with, with Michael, I've, I've also done some, some fixing and changes and things. And I think it's just lucky that I've gotten a chance to revisit this three times with three great directors. How many times does that happen? Yeah, it's extraordinary. So so in in looking at, you know, I saw it first at Encores and, you know, and, and that's the production that then has transferred to Broadway and, and to such incredible success and, and best revival of a musical uh, just a little over a week ago. Um, when you sort of look at this piece now versus when you first wrote it, when you say sort of the, I don't know, the climate, right, is was right for it, unfortunately and fortunately, I guess. Um, how do you feel different? What's different about you now than when you first worked on the material? I got old. And I got a little more sure of myself. Mm. And uh, I knew what worked in it. And uh, I was receptive. I've learned to be the receptive to directors that I trust. And Michael has a wonderful way of doing that. He, he runs a great rehearsal room. 
everybody wants to look good for him and feel good for him. And he just does that. It's not to show, he, he's just very good at evoking the best. And uh, I love this company. I, I don't, I, there's never been a better company. There's not yeah. a weak link in it. And yeah. uh, with a cast of, well, what, 25, six, uh, that's unusual. How often do you go see it? All of it? Not very often, but some of it, maybe every week or so. Mm -hmm. you, you check in and, and visit your family. You know, they say, write what you know. And I feel like for you, that has been such an, an incredible way in to this career. I mean, you yourself was, you know, you were a Jewish person growing up in, in the, the South in Georgia, um, driving Miss Daisy and the last night of Ballyhoo and Parader stories that take place in the South uh, and are, are Jewish centric in all very different ways. Um, I didn't realize this, but when, when you were asked sort of what might be your connection personally to the Leo Frank, uh, Leo and Lucille Frank story, you said that your grandmother, an inspiration for driving Miss Daisy, knew Lucille Frank. Well, not only that, uh, <clears throat> her, my great uncle, her brother-in-law owned the pencil factory where Mary Fagan was murdered. Leo Frank worked for my great uncle, Sigmund Montag, and uh, it was just very connected. My grandmother often, or at least I don't know how often, took Leo Frank his, his dinner every day. Uh, and they were they were young newlyweds to Lucille and Leo and my, and my grandparents. I mean, when this happened, Leo was 20, Eight, I think, and Lucia was 23. They were young. Yeah. And uh, my grandmother may have been just a couple of years older, but they, they, in that German Jewish sect in Atlanta, it was very small. And so everybody now, everybody knew each other well. I mean, it was like sort of relatives. Uh, and that story hit the German Jewish community in Atlanta hard. And I was born maybe 25, 22 years later. But it was still verboten to talk about it. It was just too painful. And so that was a story you heard about. Do you think you met Lucille Frank in your in your I, youth? I know I did because she played cards with my grandmother. Uh, but when you're a little kid, uh, your grandmother's friends are just like old spookies, right? You don't really know anything that much. But uh, right. but I remember, yeah, I remember. I had to go in and mind my manners and say, howdy, Miss Lucille, and so forth. And so I remember that. But of course, I know that one thing I knew from the get-go was that she never left Atlanta. And she worked, I think that the word was a vendeuse, a, a, like a in a dress, in a well-to-do dress store. She was like the receiver of, oh, hello, Mr. So-and-so. What would you like to see today? Uh, and uh, she never, she always was, went by Mrs. Leo M. Frank. Never, wow. she never, and she's buried in Atlanta. They didn't have kids, correct? No, the, I think there may have been a miscarriage somewhere along the way, but no, they didn't have kids. So when you are um, creating the, the, the story to be the center of this musical, 
obviously there's tremendous research that can just be done going into, you know, newspaper archives, your memory of this woman. Did you talk to family members or, or was it all from your brain and your fantasy about the events? I, I did talk to, to some family members. Uh, my mother was four years old at the time. So she had vivid memories of certain things, but I, I knew, I just, because I knew the community I was born into. I knew what those people were like. Mm -hmm. I knew that they were pretty uptight people who were very private. And I knew that when I saw, when I read the testimonies and the things, he, he was accused of murdering a child. He was accused of having sex with young men. That, that kind of thing was just unthinkable for somebody as, as reserved as he was, uh, and what it must have, what it must have cost, and it, if you read the letters, you can see how their relationship evolved from very polite to when he was in the jail, to when he was at the prison farm, from from, from dear Miss Seelig to Hey Honey. I mean, it was it it was a warming relationship. And uh, I, I just worked on that. I just, I just used that. It's, um, you know, it's so beautiful. It's so painful. It, it is really, when you talk about Michael Arden and this particular production, there's a simplicity to it that really allows each of the characters, the main and the ensemble, um, there's a way in which it, it reminds me when you talk about the Dunmar. I mean, there really is, you're, you're not at the Dunmar, you're in a Broadway house, but there really is this magical thing that happens where you feel more and more like the story, like the camera gets closer. It's all in close-up, I guess, is what it's it feels my, like. That sort of true crime aspect of it is all yeah. my important. Yeah. The photos and the locations and the photography, that's all my and there's a wonderful dimension to it. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, can we just go back a little bit uh, and, we'll, and we'll circle back and end right here where we are with this glorious production of Parade. Um, when did you start writing? Not even professionally, like when did you start putting pen to paper or pencil to notebook and what you observed in life became documented in some way in your unique voice? I don't know when I started. I always wrote. Mm -hmm. I always, I used to, in grammar school, I would, I was a big reader because uh, I was a lousy athlete. Uh, and I would take whatever books we were reading. I remember Hans Brinker and the Silver Skates or Tom Sawyer, and I would make plays, radio plays out of them. And I would imagine this guy is going to be this character and she's going to be. So I always want to dramatize things ever since I can remember. What about performing? I'm not an actor. Never. Never in your living room for your family. I can hear it, but I can't do it. So I've been in sort of awe all my life to people like you who can do it. I can imagine it and I can hear it. But right. And so did you, you went to Brown, right? To Brown University. And, and at the time, did you have to choose a major? Did you have to declare? English lit. Okay. I'm very glad I, I could have 
they, they, I could have cobbled together a major about theater, but I I discovered the classics. I mean, in high school, I'd read them, but they bored me absolutely silly. And but I really came to love them at Brown. And uh, I thought if you read pretty much everything in English lit that Brown was the teacher, you're never going to read it again. And that's true. And also, I had a unique experience of uh, joining, there was a theater class that was a practicum. It met four hours a day from like, uh, I don't know, one o'clock to five o'clock, uh, five days a week. It was, it was more than a class. And I, that was going on at the same time that the Brown Theater Program was doing a Shakespeare play. They were doing As You Like It. And uh, so I had the advantage of falling in love with the theater and realizing the theater people was where I belonged. I felt like I was coming home. They're just more fun. They're more sparkly. They're theater people. I think you know that. And there's, they mean, that was just what I wanted. Also, I fell in love with Shakespeare because I didn't know much about Shakespeare at all. But I was stage manager of As You Like It. And I said, oh my God, this, this is mommy. And it's sharp and it's sweet and this language is so gorgeous. And I fell in love with the girl <laughs> playing Celia. And I married her. And we were married for 60 years. And so I had the advantage of falling in love with the theater <clears throat> and Shakespeare and music, everything, all at once. So. Well, your wife was, I went to Fordham University, and your wife was just one of the most, you know, when people would talk about, I mean, she, I didn't know she'd been an actress before she, she went into academics, and one of the, like, most beloved, respected, you know, her grad students just she was the the one they remember forever in terms of she was and yeah uh, she taught she taught teachers how to diagnose learning disabilities and dyslexia i mean that was something that was just it was, no one knew what that was it was it was not being, yeah. yeah and and she really was so at the forefront of of just making that word a not scary and giving people a chance to figure out how to teach dyslexic kids and and just such a, I mean I just love you know my memory of people talking about her and getting to meet her is if you wanted to talk about love of reading that was a person who thank you, thank you for, for bringing that up yes yes just an extraordinary person and so warm and you guys it's funny just as a couple your your vibes were very different in yeah. terms of how you presented in the world and I love, I don't think I knew that you were college sweethearts and that you had been together that long. Um, well, we were still at college, and but dating pretty seriously. Yeah. She said, I don't think both of us should do this theater thing. Uh, I don't think I'm, I feel it to the bone like you do. So if we're going to stay together, I, I'm, I'm going to back down. Uh, and I'm wow. so good. I mean, you know that the only way you can really do serious theater is, is if you have to. Mm -hmm. uh, and luckily she didn't have to. Uh, right. And ended up having just the most extraordinary career in her own yeah, right. Um, 
and and if I recall, you had four daughters. Correct. Okay, so I. Uh, when I think about like you joining, like finding the kind of circus that is theater people or are theater people. Um, I know when we talked a lot, when I was preparing for Ballyhoo, I mean, it did, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you described a pretty proper upbringing. I mean, were there a lot of laughs in your house growing up or, or was it void of laughs? There were laughs. Uh, they weren't show off, kind of jump up on the table and sing like that. It was sharp, sharp comments about things. And my grandmother, my Miss Daisy grandmother, had uh, five sisters. And I remember being a little kid and like so little, I was like playing on the ground with trucks and things or in, in the room. And, and one, one of the sisters would say, I saw Miriam Stein last night. You did not? I certainly did. Well, she's been dead for 10 years. That's her sister, Hattie. And I saw her. And she and they would just go, and her hat was flat. What do you mean flat? I mean it looked like a pancake sitting on her head. I mean they would just do this, and they were at each other all the time. And then I just couldn't resist it. Were you at all, or were they at all, um, concerned about you including their stories in your work as you as you went from lyricist? Because I know you'd be. You began in in musicals, and then success has really, really come. Uh, you know, as a book writer uh, and and playwright, how did you, especially talk about driving Miss Daisy? I mean, how did you approach your family and go? I'm writing this play. It's about you. Well, my grandmother was gone by then. Okay, to... but your mother. Oh was... yeah, my mother. Well, in truth, uh, that play is a lot about me and my mother. Uh, I mean, my grandmother did live with us, and uh, she didn't have a son. She only had my mother was an only child, but uh, her her backing her car over the hill and into a garage down below, that all happened. And uh, then when her driver came, that all happened in my house. Uh, and my grandmother did not have a sense of humor. She, but she was hilarious, and we all just we we just. So and so, there's stories in Valley all the time. There's there's one about her friend, what was her name? I can't remember. Esther. Her friend Esther had two daughters, see, and they were very popular. Mama said, and uh, when when the older one went to nursery school or kindergarten, poor thing got the German measles the second week she was there, and. She didn't get invited. She couldn't go to all the birthday parties, and she lost all her friends. Period. That was the, that story. We said, "Mama, that doesn't make any sense." Well, it did happen, and poor thing. And now she's dietitian. Um, well, there's a straight line from German measles as a kid to dietitian. Obviously, it couldn't have happened any other way. And if only she hadn't been sick and could gone to the birthday party. <laughs> Her whole life. She, who knows what that woman would be doing today. Well, I mean, so much of Valley Who is, certainly for my character, this obsession with Gone of the Wind, Gone with the Wind is opening and, and Scarlett O'Hara. I mean, my character's absolute nonstop, um, really like 
rabid obsession with that movie is is a big driving force, at least in in the moment that this play is happening for this family. Were you obsessed with movies as a kid? Very much. I mean, that Lala is sort of me. Not, I mean, I, I wasn't going on about the dresses and all that, but I was obsessed with going to win. And for, for her, she was uh, about 15 years older than I would have been. I was a baby when Gone with the Wind came out. Right. But, uh, when I was a little boy, gone, still in the, in the 40s and early 50s, Gone with the Wind was everywhere in Atlanta. The airport, the Atlanta airport was full of like hail, uh, bales of hay and like women, black women with kerchiefs on their head smiling at you and little piccadinnies dancing around. It was amazing. That was all still going on. Right. And uh, I always, I always, part of me thought it was kind of baloney and to use a polite word. And uh, after, after I got over being obsessed with it, I realized how sort of sick the whole thing was. And uh, all these, uh, in the culture I lived in, the, these German Jews all wanting to be Scar O'Hara. It was crazy, but it was funny. So, How many, you know, you've talked a lot about how your family came to America. You know, there were many generations. When, when did your family arrive from what you can tell? As far as I know, my Atlanta family came to Georgia in the 1840s before Atlanta was named Atlanta. Now, I, I don't know. I, I know that there's a thing, uh, a, a letter from some great, great grandfather talking about driving a covered wagon with pots clanging on the side through, from Philadelphia. And uh, it, it was, a, there were, and the, in the play, uh, they mentioned what my grandma always said that her some relative was the first white child born in Atlanta after Atlanta was named Atlanta. I mean, it went way back. And my father's family, not like Valley, who was not from New York, was from Louisiana. And they went back even further. So they were Jews, but they'd always been there. For They were there in the 1840s and the big migration of the Eastern European Jews didn't really start until the 1890s, 50 years later. So these people were considering themselves pretty highfalutin. And uh, who are these upstarts coming in with the beards and the, I mean, but they, in order to uh, assimilate, pretty much gave up being Jewish. I mean, they didn't pretend they weren't, but Reform Judaism was, was invented around then and practiced so strictly and firmly the temple I, I, what we went belong to was the, called the temple. No Hebrew, nothing, just a temple. And uh, the the we uh, the choir was from across the street in the Methodist church. I never went to a bar mitzvah. I never went to a seder. I went to Easter egg hunts. We had Christmas trees. It was crazy. I missed it all. Did you experience? Are you aware or do you have memories of experiencing anti-Semitism as a kid? Of course, all the time. I mean, w like, what are examples? Like, uh, kid would get mad at me and say, you dirty Jew. I mean, all, all the time. 
Uh-huh. Yet I didn't have any any cultural knowledge or feeling when I when I graduated from Brown and moved to New York. I had a writing partner, and I was in, introduced to Sayers at his house, and they had songs, they had laughs, they had. I I didn't know one single word of Hebrew. I I didn't know anything, and I just. As the years passed, I realized I was robbed. I was absolutely robbed of all that. And I don't think uh, I don't think you can pretend to have something if you don't have it, as far as how you feel. So consequently, my daughters, some of whom claim to be Jewish, uh, they were brought up with nothing. They were brought up because that's what I had to give them. I had to give them love and stuff like that. But Right. So when you look at your the things that you've been lauded for and awarded for and sort of this breadth of work that's so about Judaism at its center by someone who other than the label had very little connection to it in terms of ritual, religion. Like, how do you, how do you make sense of that? I don't. It's just, it just a, is. It is. I I started out, as you mentioned, as a lyric writer, and uh, I had some success. I wrote with with my collaborator, Bob, Robert Wallman, I wrote The Robert Bridegroom, and that was Southern. It was based on your daughter Welty story, certainly not about Jews. Uh, but I began to realize in my 30s and 40s that I needed to, I needed to deal with the way I, I needed to face what I grew up with. I needed to not be ashamed of being Jewish. I mean, we were treated like that's like you have a lame you have a lame leg or or scar on your face. You just make the most of it. And that's a terrible and it was done with all the love in the world. But it's a terrible thing to do to a Jewish child to have no knowledge of the rich past that we all share. Uh, and I guess this is always been my way of dealing with it. Do you like writing? Like writing? Yeah, I have a lot of writer friends who are incredible at it and hate writing. Um, I, I don't know, do I like breathing? I, I mean, I don't know. I just kind of <laughs> have to do it. Do you have, do you have like a, are, are you very set in your ways about when, how, where, ritualistic? It's very strange. Uh, I know I'm a morning person, so I do my best early in the morning. But uh, I also know that my writing career lives on its own time and has mm -hmm. nothing to do with the rest of my life, really. Mm -hmm. Things can be going very well in life. And I can be stuck for three or four months and not able to even think about something. And consequently, the other way around, things can be at a bad turn. And all of a sudden, the spirit goes on and you do it. So it's not, I, I don't know whether it's something I choose to do or I have to do. I, I really don't know. And I don't know where it comes from. But I don't know as an actor, you know where it comes from either, right? It just comes. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, I mean you can't did you analyze. study? Did you study writing the craft of writing? Did you ever sort of deep dive into structure I didn't and? No, I was doing it. But uh huh. 
as a when my children were, we lived on the Upper West Side, and there was a very loosey goosey, wonderful school called Calhoun that uh, is still there, but no, not loosey goosey anymore. And uh, it was called School Without Walls, and everything was like open. And I taught theater there, and I taught English literature, and I taught Shakespeare all the time. And having fallen in love with Shakespeare when I was in college, I got more and more into Shakespeare, and I, I would teach, I would teach beginning Shakespeare to ninth graders many times a year, and I'd always start with two plays, I'd start with Romeo and Juliet, and then I'd do the Scottish play, I'd do Macbeth, and I just did them over and over and over, and I realized what a genius he was, or they were, whoever, I don't care who wrote it, that matter. Yeah, um, we'll call it Shakespeare. Well, Whatever that is, yeah. I always would talk about it, the famous sleepwalking scene in Macbeth. And that scene starts with a nurse and a doctor saying, Lady Macbeth is really crazy. And she walks in her sleep and she talks in her sleep. And she's just unreachable. She's just so crazy. So then she comes in. She walks in her sleep, she talks in her sleep, and acts totally awful. Then she goes out, and the nurse and the doctor, she was so crazy. I mean, they say three times, because I think when they wrote, when he wrote the plays, there was a lot, he had to say it a lot, because people were eating oranges or picking up dates or doing whatever they're doing, so he had to make clear. Uh, and and I, I learned a lot. From, from that, I never thought I was going to be Shakespeare. But at the same time, uh, I happened to be working at the Goodspeed Opera House somehow, reviving old musicals. And uh, the first one I did, I was still teaching, was uh, under George M. Cohen musical called Little Johnny Jones. And it was a show that was uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy and Give My Regards to Broadway, 1904. And the book was unplayable. It had Welcome to the Land of Wang and uh, uh, something about some the March of the Chinese Chinks. I mean, things you couldn't possibly do. So, but it, it was that score with those two wonderful songs. So I've just made up this whole other show. And it did great. Good speed. It toured for a year. It eventually opened on Broadway, starring Donny Osmond, ran one night. Uh, but I, I love musicals. I always loved musicals. When I was a kid, uh, I saw all the great Rogers and Hammerstein shows, and they just knocked me out. I wanted to do that. I wanted to be a part of them all. And there was that combined with, with pure theater, like Shakespeare. I just all of a sudden I got it. It just, and I shied away from writing plays because. I don't think I had a lot of self-confidence in that area. Uh, so that a friend of mine sent me to, she was a friend and she would see things in, out of town and as she'd say, would you go up to, I think it was Stamford, Connecticut, and see this play? So I went to Stamford and it was this two-character play about a woman in Minnesota, a white girl, and a black woman in somewhere like Rwanda or somewhere, Kenya, I don't know. And they never met. It was a, 
that kind of a relationship with they exchange letters back and forth. And she, I, she asked me what I thought. And I said, Jesus, Jane, I could write a better play than that. And it just occurred to me to write a play about my grandmother and her driver. And I did it. That was the first play I ever wrote. It started off Broadway, right? Or or did it start hey, out of town? No, it started at the uh, it started at Playwrights Horizons. And okay. it never it never played Broadway. Right. But sorry, but it, it played London. I mean it it, Eventually, it played it all over the world. Yeah. So so Alfred, I mean, it it's been a few years now, but do you remember them calling your name at the Oscars? I do. What oh. can you talk about that? Yeah, that was quite a uh, quite a what happened was that we were in California for a week before the Oscars. And it occurred to me that I might win. I mean, I was I was not the favorite, but I and so I thought I'm gonna have to say something. And I was embarrassed to say, and we were in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, so I'm not gonna say anything with her. I didn't want to do that. So I would take about two showers a day and I would stand in the shower and, and say things so that I'd have something to say. And there was a movie with Tom Cruise called Born on the Fourth of July that was about a paraplegic and written by this guy that really was paraplegic. And in the, when you when you're at the Oscars, as in the, with Tony, you're seated with people sort of in your category. So I was seated right next to him. And when they were about to do our category during a break, they came and he was paraplegic. They got him out of his seat and in, into a wheelchair on the island. I thought, well, it's that. So, uh, but it wasn't that. I, I name was called. The first thing I remember was thinking, I'm going to fall over this wheelchair because I'm a klutz anyway. And don't, God, don't let me fall over this wheelchair. And I remember that, and I remember getting the Oscar presented by Jane Fonda. And we're walking off the stage. She said, you don't know what's going on, do you? I said, no. She said, I know, because it's happened to me. You'll, you'll, you'll just, they'll take care of it, and you'll wake up a couple hours from now, and you'll be all right. And so that, and then uh, after that, I won the Tony for, for Ballyhoo and the Tony for Parade. And my wife said, um, oh. okay, if you win, you really look at me and you really kiss me, you know, and go up there. Where do you keep all of your statues and, and your Pulitzer and all of your awards? Do you have a place that you they're still... They're behind you? Yeah, they're over there. Do you ever look at them? Sure, because they're, they're above the TV. You know, the top shelf. And... Anytime just my eye wanders, it's all there. There it is, all up there. Uh, I don't dwell on it, but uh, it's there. Was the Pulitzer, I mean, you cannot be in show business and understand and, and have heard of the Pulitzer. What what was that finding out? When you're on, when you win a Pulitzer, do you first find out you're on a list of people being considered? Is there a whole process? I, I didn't know that. Yes, there's a short list. Yeah. I know that. I mean, it was my, that was before all these other awards. That was, and we were doing the first out-of-town production of Miss Daisy. 
in Chicago with Seda Thompson. Do you remember Seda Thompson? Of course, of course, from family, <laughs> among other things, but yes. Uh, so we were deep into rehearsing that and putting it on. And uh, it, I was being interviewed at the Chicago Sun-Times. And uh, this by a woman, I've forgotten her name now, but she was a theater critic. And this guy poked his head in the office and says, is this Yuri? And I said, yeah. He said, you just won the Pulitzer Prize. And I had to finish the interview with this woman. And my wife was in New York. I was without family or anything. And it, it still seems completely surreal. And there was all this press and microphones in my face. And all I wanted to do was go home and be with my mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I do know now that they have a short list for the Pulitzer, but I didn't know that then. And uh, I mean, to me, that and being in the Theater Hall of Fame are the biggies. Mm -hmm. All of the others. Being recognized by your industry as being good at what you do is very nice. But uh, all of these prizes are, are, are uh, quality. They're not quality. They're not like oh, the Olympic medals. That's clearly for who ran the fastest, who swam the furthest. This is all just, he, he did the best thing in this list. He was the best. But you can't, why is he the best? Why is not they the best? I mean, it's just luck. Yeah. Well, do you feel like you've been lucky? Damn lucky, yeah. How? Why are you so lucky? Why do you think you've been chosen? Uh, I think I was the only one working that side of the street. I mean, I was writing about something that other people weren't writing about. And uh, I happened to be, to be able to write words that actors want to say. So everything I've done, I've had good actors and good singers. I never had, I mean, there've been productions when I felt like, well, they're not really very good, but not of these things. It was just a question of, if you write a really good part, there's somebody out there who's going to be great at it. No matter, well, it's hard because she's half fish and half moose somebody that's half fish and half moose is going to come along and be right for the part. I don't know where that comes from, but it's just... That is very specific. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's always... I've also found in shows that weren't so solid that the part that was the weakest is generally played by the weakest actor. Mm -hmm. Because there's not the actor's fault so much. It's just not, not enough hooks to sink into it so right. floating around right um, so it's it's you know i i don't know about you but i firmly believe in the theater gods i believe that they they smile on you or they don't smile on you and of course that's just another word for luck yeah or is i i don't know well i think about ben platt who you know i i love ben so much i i played his mom you know, in a play and, and still feel like he's mine. Um, although his own mom, Julie Platt is the greatest woman oh, on the planet. So, so all hail Julie. When you think about like Ben, talk about someone being so 
connected to his Judaism, so out about it, so loud about it, so unapologetic, so free to be um, a Jewish actor on the planet, first and foremost, is that must just be wild to you when you think about your upbringing and your relationship to it and now having it the center of it. I sat behind Julie at the Tonys the other night and I said, you raised a beautiful boy. She said, I raised five beautiful children. That's right. I said, the amazing thing to me about Ben is not only his talent, but if he was a jerk, he'd already be one. And he's not. He's the sweetest, most loving, thoughtful boy as well as being, you know, talented, good looking, brave. I mean, pick one. He's got all of it. It's incredible. And how fortunate it is that a, a man exactly the right age to play Leo Frank and is a star and is that talented comes along and plays Leo Frank. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, talk about a like truly a match made in heaven, right? Yeah. I mean, talk about, and the timing, right? The luck, like he wasn't doing something else. He was available to do encores. He was available to, to continue on with it. And and it's really introducing a whole new generation to this play. Now, I mean, now on TikTok, right? Like now everywhere you go, people are singing, you know, cancel all your parties. You know, it's like, it's incredible. It's just taken on a life of itself. True. And Michaela, same thing. Michaela's yeah. story is different. But Michaela Dye is right now 23 years old. And yeah. she she was at LaGuardia High School. And she's going to go to Carnegie Mellon or somewhere. I forgot where. And she she um she she went from LaGuardia to an audition for the share show and got the lead when she was 18. And and was incredible and had this kind of sense of self and composure on stage, not just like this vocal insanity brilliance, I but like she's 23. I know, I know. I don't know what's in the water that all these kids are drinking. It's pretty incredible. So the name of this podcast is Little Known Facts, and I like to end each episode asking my guest if perhaps there's a little known fact about them that they can share. I, when I was in high school, I wrote music, lyrics, and script of a musical about a trip to Europe, and I didn't know how to play the piano. And I'd never been to Europe. And I wrote all these songs without knowing how to play the piano. I don't know how it got put on, but somehow it did. But that was my intro to being in theater. And you haven't stopped. That's it. I mean, it's been the most prolific, gorgeous career. I mean, it's, it is an extraordinary thing to see how you took your very specific life and made something so universal out of it. I remember doing Ballyhoo and the number of people, of course, who came up to me who were were saying quite literally that was their story. They grew up in Atlanta. They went to the Standard Club. They knew Ballyhoo. But then just the hundreds of people who would, who would wait outside the Helen Hayes Theater each night who had absolutely no relationship to this specific story yet related to it so completely because there was something about that family that made them think of their family and their feeling other, right? It's all about the other. The truth is the truth. Yeah. Specifically, but I found out when we did Value that every group had its prejudices like 
the Irish looked down on the Black Irish and something called the Lace Curtain Irish and Eastern European Jews versus German Jews. Right. Uh, All the ways in which people wanted wanted feel them feel better about themselves by making someone else feel less than it's it is more universal than obviously we can imagine and and but you've also given voice to just so many people's stories um and given roles to so many actors you write plays with a lot of people and it's really thrilling to get to be a part of your ensembles and now I get to thank you in person for really what was just a, a role of a lifetime and and the people I met doing that play and you especially would just you know I was so crazy Lala would write in her journal every night and in the play and then I started sending you all the stuff that I was writing in the journal and you were the busiest man in the world and I was a young new actress and I sent you this stuff and you wrote back as if you were you know random house talking to one of their, you know, New York Times bestselling authors. It was your, you were fun and you made it fun. And I just love you. And I'm so lucky I got to talk to you today. And thank you. Thank you for this gorgeous, gorgeous musical called Parade that is really breaking hearts and inspiring people to do better and right some wrongs and shed a light on, sadly, how how not far we've come in in ways that we think we have. So thank you, thank you, Alfred Yuri. Thank you very much. I've I've really enjoyed it. Thank well, you. I hope to see you soon at the theater. Well, bye-bye. fact now you can watch hours and hours of my interviews with your favorite artists as they talk about the art they love to make on youtube that's right i have a youtube channel it's called little known facts with alana levine catchy right subscribe and enjoy little known fact if you want to donate to the podcast just go to little known facts forward slash donations thank you so much in advance for your generosity have a great day Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.